standing with me. Uh, we're going to continue our worship as we read God's word. Uh, and as it probably says already behind me, we'll be in the book of Genesis chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, I would love if you would open to Genesis 15. And uh, it's going to be a little confusing because we do ch- verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump to 12 through 17. So we'll pause in the middle there so that you can track um, if you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen behind me or on the monitors around the room. Um, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 12 through 17. This is what that says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we're going to jump down to verse 12 where it says this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 500 years ago, in the year 1517, a wily, young, 33-year-old monk named Martin Luther marched across a little town in Germany and nailed a lengthy document to a church door. That document is known as the 95 Theses. Luther almost died because of it, but it sparked a movement that called people back to the teachings of Scripture. What happened that day was like a watershed that ended up renewing the Christian faith and changing the course of history. So this year is the 500th anniversary. And so I think it's fitting... This morning, we are where we are in our series, because at the heart of that document, nailed to that door 500 years ago, is the theology found in our passage today. It helps shape that document. And even more important than the role this passage plays in history is the role that it plays in Scripture, by the time we get to the New Testament, this passage is called upon to come to the stand again and again like a key witness testifying to our understanding of the Christian faith. In other words, what we will find in our passage today is foundational theology. Theology. What comes to mind when you hear that word? We're playing the word association game. For many of us in the church at large, when we hear the word theology, we might think dry, dull, and detached. Maybe we imagine someone giving a monotone lecture in some far-off classroom, like the doctrine of eschatology is the thrilling 
examination of the end of time. Right? We want something practical that impacts the way we live our lives. But I want you to know that theology has everything to do with how we live. It is intensely practical. Why? What is theology? It literally means the study of God. To study means to take a long look. So theology is taking a long look at God. It's about our view of God. And that has everything to do with how we live our daily lives. For example, what happens if we view God as someone with unpredictable mood swings? You never know what mood he'll be in at any given moment, whether he'll be mad at you or pleased at you, whether you'll have the smile or the smack. When that's our view of God, we live our lives in fear, without security, always walking on eggshells with God, desperately trying to figure out whatever we can do to appease him so he's in that good mood. Or what happens if we view God as a taskmaster? We live our lives running around from one duty to the next, devoid of any sense of intimacy with God, always doing, doing, doing. What happens if we view God as a blubbering softy up in heaven, winking at us when we do wrong and saying, you little stinker. We live our lives without respect for God, always crossing boundaries that are set up for our good. What what happens if we view God as an American? We live our lives having a hard time seeing the difference between being citizens of this country and citizens of heaven. And it impacts the way we live. It impacts our response to current events. I'm not trying to be divisive. Being citizens of heaven is our common ground. It's our common hope. It's our common values that shapes how we respond to everyday activities. You see, theology, how we view God, has everything to do with how we live our lives from day to day, whether it's at work or home or on Facebook. In fact, whenever we are out of line in life, I am sure it could always be traced back to this question. What are you believing about God at that moment? That he's uncaring or unhearing or that he's small or not enough or that he goes back on his word. In our daily lives, it all comes back to this, our view of God. It's intensely practical. So this morning, our passage gives us a foundational view of God that indeed impacts how we live our daily lives. It shows us that God, Yahweh, the one God, the creator of heaven and earth, is the God who gives. Undeserved gifts flow from Him like a constant stream. In a word, He is a God of grace. Of the different themes we have in our sermon series until May, this passage is predominantly a story of grace. Grace! Some might think grace That's the basics, right? That's what people who don't know Jesus yet need in order to come to Jesus. But I want you to know that it's not, grace is not just in the first step. It's in every step of our lives as believers. We can't move forward without it. Or to use another analogy like fish and water, grace must be the environment in which we live 
or else we will just flop around in life and become lifeless, crusty, and stale Christians. That's why Paul used this very passage when the Galatian church was straying. That's why Martin Luther's document was based on it when the medieval church was straying because they had stopped relying on grace. Like fish, they had jumped out of the water. And the same can happen to us. It's our human default. We need to be constantly reminded of our constant need for grace. And our passage today does just that. So please turn with me, if you're not already there, to Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. The address is Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. And this passage gives us three glimpses of the God who gives. The first glimpse is found in verses 1 through 5. We read, Verses 1 through 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Since we last saw Abram, his life has been playing out like an action movie. He just got done rescuing his nephew Lot from four enemy kings and their armies and freeing the women and the captives and returning the stolen goods. He looks like a real hero. He even graciously turned down any reward for his efforts. He seems so fearless and valiant. It's like he walks off into the horizon. And then we find him here in his tent out in the countryside one night. He seems to be all by himself. And the Lord comes to him in a vision. And the Lord says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In essence, God is saying, You don't need to fear. I myself will guard you and give to you. These are words of assurance, and Abram needed to hear them. He seemed so fearless just before this, but then we find out that something was actually troubling him. Something was occupying his mind at night. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. See, Abram didn't say, God, the enemy kings, or God, my wealth, He said, Oh Lord God, I continue childless. That's what he wanted. That's what was troubling him. It was his lack of a descendant. And in case you weren't here last week in chapter 12, Abram's whole story starts off with God making a promise to him to make him into a nation, which implies having offspring. You need people to have a nation. 
And then God promised him directly in chapter 13. He says, I will make your offspring as countless as, as the dust of the earth. It's a promise from God. So when God appears to Abram here and says, essentially, I will give to you, Abram's response is, Oh Lord, I am asking that you give what you promised. I don't think this is an expression of doubt. I don't think it's an accusation of God. I think it's best understood as an expression of trust. And God doesn't rebuke Abram's response. He honors it. Abram is saying, God, you said this. And I trust your promises, so I ask you to fulfill it. And we need to camp on this for a moment. Because Abram is an example for us here. When we pray like this, it's it's an expression that we trust God's word. That we take it seriously. We trust him to fulfill it. This is how we see people praying over and over again in scripture. We need this in our prayer lives. We can come to God in prayer and out of trust say, Oh Lord, you said. And cling to his promises that we have in his word. Stand on them. For example, Oh Lord, you said that your power is made perfect in my weakness. So I ask that in my weakness... In my, in, in my sickness right now, in my feelings of inadequacy, that your strength would rise up inside of me. Or, oh Lord, you said that you will comfort those who mourn. So I ask that you would comfort me as I mourn. Oh, oh, or Lord, I'm tired and I'm overwhelmed and I'm I'm not feeling like being a God's kid teacher this morning. But you said that you supply strength to the one who serves. So I ask that you would supply me strength to serve in this role. Or, oh Lord, you said that when we face temptation, you will show us the way of escape. And I am in the thick of it. So I ask that you would show me the way out of this. You said, O oh Lord. And one that I pray regularly on Sunday mornings, and, and, and I welcome you to join me in it, is this. O oh Lord, you said that you sent your Spirit to exalt Jesus. So I, I ask that your Spirit would do just that today. That Jesus would be exalted in this hour that, that we would come away with a greater understanding and a greater vision and a greater love for Jesus. More of Jesus. That's what we want, isn't it? More than anything else, more than lack of technical difficulties, more than coffee that is just the right temperature and just the right strength, more of Jesus. And that's what the Spirit does. That's what God promises. So that's what we can stand on. But in order to say, God, you said, we need to know what God said. We need regular intake of His Word. And God can help us with that if we ask. He can work in our hearts to take in His Word so that we can stand on it, stand on His promises, 
as the old hymn says that we used to sing in my church growing up, it's nothing profound, but it gets to the point. Standing, 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 standing on the promises of God. And that's what Abram was doing here. And God meets him in that. He tells Abram directly, you will have your very own son. And then he leads him outside his tent underneath the vast open night sky. Have you ever been way out of the city? In the middle of nowhere, like Iowa or something. And you looked up at the night sky. And it's like the sky is smothered with stars. Stars on top of stars. Like stars spread out like dust and stars that are sparkling like diamonds. Sometimes it's like there's more stars than there is sky. Imagine Abram out in the open country in the Middle East, long before electricity was ever invented, looking up at the night sky and God says, Abram, so shall your offspring be. Isn't that great? God gave Abram a sign to hold on to. He didn't have to. But now every time when Abram looks up at the sky, he has this powerful visual reminder of the promise of God. Confirmation. It was tangible what he needed. It was encouragement in the midst of his waiting on God. It may not be just like Abram expected. It may not be according to his timeline. But God will fulfill his word. He can just look up at the stars and take a deep breath and know that God will fulfill His Word. It was promised, confirmed, and assured to Abram. God will fulfill His Word. You can count on it. This is the first glimpse that we see in our passage of the God who gives. He gives what He says He will give. He always does. You can stand on it, cling to it, and count on it. And this lays the groundwork for everything else. Because if if God can't be trusted to give what He says He will give, then nothing else makes sense. This is the starting point, but it keeps building. The second glimpse of the God who gives is found in verse 6 alone. Let's take a look. And Abram believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This verse is, is stuffed. It's, it's packed like, like, like a luggage that you have to sit on. It's so packed in order to close it. So we need to take a second to unpack it. What does it mean that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness? Well, first, what does it mean that Abram believed the Lord? My wife Lisa talks about the distinction that Beth Moore famously makes between believing in God and believing God. And that's what's going on here. It's not just that Abram believes in God, that he believes that God exists, or even that he believes the right things about God. The New Testament says that even demons do that, but it's not enough. We can believe in God. We can even believe the right things about God. But that's just facts in our head until we believe God. What does it mean that Abram believed the Lord? He trusted Him. You see, there's a difference between believing in something and trusting it. 
for an astronaut, there's a difference between believing in the physics behind space travel and actually climbing to the top of a rocket to be blasted off. That's trust. Abram trusted God. He trusted who God is. In essence, he's saying, I'm jumping into this knowing that you'll catch me because I trust you. I trust who you are. Abraham trusted God to do for him what he could never do for himself. He believed God, and as a result, it says, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, God looked upon Abraham as having righteousness. He regarded him as righteous. What is righteousness? It's a life that lines up with God's standards. To have righteousness is to have right standing with God, as if he says to you, not guilty. God regarded Abram as having righteousness, as having a life that lines up with his standards, as having right standing with God, not guilty. Why? Why? Why was Abram seen as righteous? Because he piled up so many righteous deeds? Because he lived so perfectly? No. It says, because he believed God. Because he trusted him. This is a radical statement in Scripture. It has nothing to do with anything Abram did. Abram's life was far from perfect. Abram was granted right standing with God as a gift. It was given to him. Undeserved and unearned, he believed God, and boom, God bestowed righteousness on him. He believed God, and God treated him as if... He lived a righteous life. Isn't that good news? A few weeks ago, my mom got a call that, uh, that the older brother of one of my childhood friends was given a short time to live. She asked if she could come over, and her and another lady from the neighborhood came over and shared Christ with this man. About a week later, they found out that he had placed his trust in Christ. And from that point on, every night except once, he held hands with his mom and prayed to the Lord. Last Sunday, a week ago, we got word that he passed away. My mom called the house. And my friend actually picked up the phone. He said, I I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to thank you. Because ever since you talked to my brother, he was different. My friend doesn't know Jesus yet, and he said that before his older brother died, his older brother told him to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look at God. An entire lifetime can be instantly declared righteous. There was no time left for my friend's brother to make his life perfect. There was no time left to pile up righteous deeds. But God doesn't work that way. Righteousness is not earned. It is instantly bestowed as a gift when we trust Him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to save us. And this side of the cross, we know what it took to save us. We know what it took to declare guilty people not guilty. At the cross, Jesus paid the guilt in full. Isn't that good news? It's good news when we realize that like Abram, our lives are far from perfect. But we can be given right standing with God, not by earning it, not by deserving it, but by faith. 
Isn't that good news? But at the same time, isn't that humbling news? This often ends up being a major obstacle standing in the way of salvation. Because in our pride, we desperately want to do something to save ourselves. So that we can feel good about ourselves or maybe even superior to someone else. It's humbling to confess that there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. Actually, one author puts it this way. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin you need to be forgiven of. That's all. That's humbling. Have you ever been in a situation where you were involved in a dramatically unequal gift exchange? It's like someone gives you this amazing gift that they clearly thought through and worked hard on and sacrificed for, and it was perfect for you. And all you got them was like this little popsicle stick that you drew a smiley face on. How embarrassing. It's humbling. But now imagine this. God gives you this beautiful gift that cost him dearly. And it's the very thing you need the most. Salvation. It's perfect for you. And in return, you give him this ugly, putrid box of your sin against him. That's all you have. All the ways you have insulted him, ran from him, grieved from him, and opposed him, wrapped up in a box. That's the exchange. That's humbling. But that's the only way it works. And look at God. Look at God in this. So willing to exchange our sin for his righteousness. What an amazing God. There's good news in this passage. This is the second glimpse of the God who gives. He gives righteousness as a gift, unearned and undeserved. But what if this is too good to be true? The third glimpse continues to build on this in verses 7 all the way to 21. So let's read. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God just got done telling Abram all he was going to give him. But he's not done. He keeps reiterating his promises. He tells Abram, this is who I am. And I will give you this land. And once again, Abram asks for confirmation. As one scholar said, this is not doubt. It's like the man who stood before Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So God did just that. He helps Abram. He meets him in his need. He helps him by giving him instructions for another sign of confirmation. And Abram immediately gets busy. We watch in confusion as Abram runs around gathering together all these different animals. But Abram isn't confused. It seems like he knows exactly what's going on. He cuts the larger animals in two pieces and spreads the pieces out so that there's a path down the middle. What is going on here? From a different passage in Scripture, and even from some other ancient Near Eastern documents, it seems likely that this is a covenant ritual. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. The people making the covenant would walk through the animals as a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, then I will become like these animals. I will be cut off from the land of the living. That's probably why in the original Hebrew, throughout the Old Testament, when it says to make a covenant, the words literally mean to cut a covenant. It's powerful imagery. If we had to do this every time we signed up with a new cell phone company, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't pay our bills late. It's powerful imagery. This will happen to me if I break my commitment. But here's where it takes an incredible twist. Something unexpected happens. Abram dutifully gets everything all set up. It's all set. The animals are laid out. God declares the details of the, of, of the promise. And then look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What is the fire pot and the flaming torch? All throughout Scripture, fire is the symbol of God's presence. God is walking through the covenant ritual saying, this will happen to me if I break my commitment. But normally it seems like both parties were supposed to do this together to walk through the path together. It's a mutual commitment. But where is Abram? Look up at verse 12. He's asleep. He's at rest. He's out of the picture. God is walking by Himself. What? This is unbelievable. It's like watching a wedding ceremony and the officiant says, do you promise to be faithful? And God says, I do. And then God stands on the other side in our place and the officiant says, do you promise to be faithful? And God says, I do. It's, it's like God is shaking His own hand. It's like He's writing His name on both sides of a contract. 
the technical term is a unilateral covenant. It's a one-way commitment. It's like he's saying, I will do all the work. Mine and yours. And this is a pattern that is ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant brought by the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is committed to His people. He reaches out His hand over and over again. But in our sin, we reject Him and we turn our backs on Him. But at the cross, the Son of God reached back to God for us and both sides of the obligation were fulfilled. So by by faith, we can walk that bridge and be connected to God forever. Jesus cried out, it is finished. In other words, the saving work is over. The cross is God saying, I will do all the work, mine and yours. I will fulfill all the obligations, mine to you and yours to mine. I will do it all. That's God's one-way commitment to us. And that is sheer grace. And by grace you are saved through faith. When we turn to God and trust in Christ, when we bow to Him as Savior and Lord, we receive this salvation. As believers, this has everything to do with the way we live our daily lives for two main reasons. At least two reasons. First, it it means we can't be prideful for the work that we've done, but only humbly thankful for what's been done for us. And secondly, It means that our hearts can finally be at rest. We can rest in the finished work of the cross. You have been saved completely. You don't need further saving. You don't have to work for what Jesus has done already for you. Because the reality is, like the medieval church of Luther's time and like, like the Galatian church who needed this passage so badly, it's our constant tendency to stop relying on the grace of God. I regularly have to come to the conclusion, Carrie, you've been working for your salvation again. Even though we're, we're already saved by faith, our hearts still invent little saviors that we think will finally make us right. It goes like this. If I can only make more money, then I'll be right. That's a little savior. If I can only make more money, then I'll be right. If I can only find that relationship, then I'll be right. If I can only get that approval, if I can only get that title, if I can only achieve that accomplishment, if I can only land that job, if I can only be esteemed by others, if I can only do better and do more, then I'll be right. And it keeps us running and running and running inside, chained to a treadmill in our hearts. This passage reminds us that we can finally be at rest. We don't need to work to save ourselves, to make ourselves right. Jesus did all the work for us. By faith in Christ, we are under grace. It's like in cartoons when they picture someone having a bad day and the rain cloud follows them around wherever, we, wherever they go right? Only ours is grace. Wherever we go, there's a cloud of grace above us constantly being poured out on our lives. You can rest in it. You can rely upon it. Some people might say, don't focus so much on grace or we'll become lazy, sloppy Christians. But I believe it's the opposite. I believe the most powerful motivation in our lives is love. 
And when we take in all that God has done for us, even when we've only ever been ugly to Him, even though we, we don't deserve it and we haven't earned it, but He did everything for us, our hearts are moved by love for Him. You see, grace changes us, not law. And in love, we seek to honor Him, to serve Him, to live for Him. And when we really get this, it will show up in our lives. So really take it in, church. Get off the treadmill of trying to save yourselves. Look up at that rain cloud of grace hanging over your head and let it pour into your heart. By grace, you were saved through faith, fully, finally, and forever. The work is done. You don't need further saving. Here is our final glimpse of the God who gives. He gives rest in the covenant because He's done all the work, mine and yours. This passage gives us three glimpses of God. He is the God who gives what He says He will give. He is the God who gives righteousness as a gift. And He is the God who gives rest in the covenant. He is the God who gives. Or as 1 Peter 5.10 says, He is the God of all grace. May this theology, this foundational view of God have everything to do with how we live. May we stand on His promises. May we trust Him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to save us, to declare us righteous. And may we rest in and rely upon the finished work of salvation. Let's pray.